Well, listen, dear, now that your cage is cleaned out, you can go back now. And... Yeah, did you drink all the DDT? No, I left some for you, dear. Oh, I'm glad. Thanks awfully for the cyanide. All right, well, goodbye. Goodbye. This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, part one of Murder by Milkshake. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. I've had a fascination with the Castellani murder case ever since I first saw the true crime exhibit at the Vancouver Police Museum in the 1990s. This crime has all the ingredients from Movie of the Week an adulterous middle aged celebrity husband who rather than fight for divorce and face the wrath of the Catholic Church, decided to poison his wife so that he could marry a 25-year-old radio station receptionist. I've read various accounts of the murder over the years, even written about it myself, grounding the story in the house, or in this case a duplex, where most of the poisoning took place. Occasionally I've told the story on the radio, usually around Halloween. And then, in 2011... I wrote a post about it on my blog, Every Place Has a Story. The blog post changed everything, because fortunately for me, I made a mistake. Debbie Miller wrote to me to tell me that Lolly, the other woman, had a son called Don, not a daughter as I'd written, and Don, her husband, would very much like to find Janine, the Castellani's daughter, because he'd been searching for her for nearly 50 years. I wrote back and thanked Debbie and said I'd also like to find Janine. And then in June 2017, Janine found me. Janine and her daughter Ashley came to my book launch for Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. We held it at the Vancouver Police Museum on East Cordova Street. The museum had recently overhauled its true crime exhibits and now they had a more detailed and sensitive coverage of the Castellani murder, featuring Esther instead of Rini, and it was situated right next to our makeshift cash bar in the old autopsy suite where Esther had once lain. I told Janine that Don had been looking for her, and she got quite emotional. She'd also been searching for Don for nearly half a century. So why write a book about what is already one of the most sensational and well-known murders in Vancouver history? Well, for several reasons. The murder took place at a turning point in the 1960s, a decade of incredible change. On the one hand, you have conservative, small-town Vancouver, and two juries that convicted Rini, mostly because of his infidelity. On the other hand, you have free love and be-ins, hippies, and the Beatles, and a seismic political, cultural, and legal shift happening all across North America. It was the era of madmen, of gin breakfasts and martini lunches. And Rini Castellani may just have been the maddest ad man of them all. It was a 19th century style murder solved by a 20th century doctor and old-fashioned police work. And it was a time when the death sentence was still on the table. 
But most of all, I wanted to write the book and now create this podcast to tell Janine's story. Tell me about your mother. Tell me what you remember of her. She was a lot of fun, really hearty laugh, gave great snuggles. She was always full of joy. I never saw sadness. I felt very safe with her, you know, as a child anyway. We were like two peas in a pod. She was kind to all my friends. You know, if I had a friend, she'd buy us gifts and take us for a treat down Caresdale. Yeah, I um, went on many vacations with her. And as I get older, I really miss her. What do you miss most about her? I miss just her presence, you know, just growing old together, shopping together, sharing things as friends together. Just like having a real, like, nice relationship, mom, mom and friend, you know? I miss that. I do miss that. I miss her comfort. She was lovely. Sorry, I'm really emotional. Didn't think I was going to be. You know, there's always a void. You can't fill that void with anything else, so you just got to move on in your own kind of a way, you know? Like, I just kept moving forward, moving forward. I would love to just sit and chat with her, have a coffee, talk about life. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories, the tales of the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks, and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Find out more and book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. On July 16, 1946, Esther Luand married Rini Castellani at the Holy Rosary Cathedral in Vancouver. Afterwards, the two 21-year-olds celebrated with family and friends at the Stanley Park Pavilion. Esther worked in a parents' West End bakery, and Rini was recently discharged from the Merchant Navy, where he'd served as a radio officer. When Rini met Esther at a church function, he was working as a washing machine repairman and writing and acting in plays with a local theatre company, where he'd recently reconnected with his childhood friend, Frank Iasi. Frank's parents operated the hugely popular Iasi's restaurant in their Seymour Street house, and the restaurant became a big part of the Castellani's lives. They'd often eat there, they helped out in the kitchen when the Iasi's were short-staffed, and they met people like Dean Martin, Tom Jones, Sonny and Cher, and Mitzi Gaynor, who had come to eat there after performing at the Cave or the Palomar. Frank's uncle Joe Iasi lived next door, and he operated Candid Camera Snaps, one of Vancouver's first street photography businesses. It was where Fonzie, the legendary street photographer, got his start, and really worked alongside Fonzie, taking photos of people strolling down Granville or Hastings Streets. Later, Rini began appearing as a guest on Jack Cullen's hit CKNW radio show, Owl Prowl, 
He and Cullen would do these on-air routines, sing songs and perform various skits. One of Rennie's most popular characters was Clay Two from Outer Space. Every time is 25 minutes after 11 o'clock here on the Owl Prowl, Jack Cullen with I really mean it. It's raining cats and dogs in downtown Vancouver. I, I can. You stepped in the poodle. That's my note. How's about um, by the light of the silver moon? Do you know the words? The first chorus. Is it the plan? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Don't be nervous now. By the light. Oh yes, by that light. Of the silvery moon. Oh, sing it, Jackie boy. <laughs> I want to spoon. How about a knife right in your rib? To my honey, I'll croon. Loves to. Well, you couldn't. I got my hands around your throat. Honeymoon. Is that her name? Keep her shining in June. I'm going to light her, her head on fire. Your silvery <laughs> beams will bring love dreams. We'll be cuddling soon. She must be old because she's got beams supporting Our her. Our silvery moon. <laughs> I think I'll take the second chorus. In the fall of 1963, rival station CKLG was looking to beat N.W. in the upcoming's ratings war, and they brought up Marvin Miller, an actor in a U.S. show called The Millionaire that ran from 1955 to 1960. Miller went around Vancouver handing out cash. N.W. needed something just as good, and they came up with the Maharaja from Ali Biba, who was staying at the Bayshore Hotel in Coal Harbour and was coming over to try and buy British Columbia. I clearly remember Norm Groman as a hilarious weatherman for the 6 o'clock news in the 1990s at BCTV as it was at that time. But Norm had a long career in broadcasting going way back to the 1950s and he worked at NW at the same time as Rennie Castellani. I knew Rennie Castellani. <laughs> Not well, but you know he was there and he was a good friend of Jack Cullen. And he used to go up and visit Jack Cullen, and it was always open house, you know, bring a bottle, and you could sit around and drink and watch Jack work and party. And then years went by, and uh, Rennie, he got himself a job in the promotion department at CKNW. They came up with this idea that this very rich Maharaja was going to buy the entire province of British Columbia. (laughs) And everybody in town was talking about it. Rini Castellani was perfect for the part. He was dressed up as a Maharaja. Bob Scheel, a 22-year-old who worked in CKNW's promotions department, played Oogie, his driver, and wore a red tunic and striped pants. The Black Rolls-Royce was a loan from one of the station's owners, Robert Ballard, of Dr. Ballard's Dog Food. NW hired an off-duty motorcycle policeman to provide an escort, and two young women who normally did in-store food demonstrations for the station were dressed up as harem girls. The rolls were stashed at Bob's mum's house, who lived on Granville Street, and they would all meet there each morning and change in the basement. For two weeks, the entourage drove around Vancouver to clubs, restaurants, hotels, drive-ins, and a BC Lions game at Empire Stadium. 
This is a short segment from CKNW that George Orr kindly found for me. Back in those early 1960s, where nothing was too outrageous or racist in the quest for ratings, NW was known as a top dog. Mr. Bennett, don't sell BC. It would be sheer lunacy. Think of your peace power project. Think of light bills you won't collect. Send that bearded Maharaja on his camel to Alibaba. Some of the locals got so outraged by this idea of a Maharaja buying BC that they made up these signs saying, keep BC British. The Maharaja was such a successful promotion for NW that Rennie soon had a regular gig as a dizzy dialer, where he'd phone unsuspecting people on the air and make outrageous requests. And the food be up there about uh, 1.15, uh, we got all the, all the whole order, including the 14 order chicken chow mein. So uh, do I have a... Uh, I beg your pardon, sir, you have the wrong phone number. Uh, who ordered this, sir? I don't know, somebody phoned about uh, 11.30, uh, say they want uh, enough food for 22 people. It was probably the busy diver, is it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. Oh, well. <laughs> Good for you. I figured there was something going on. <laughs> Although Rennie was part of the promotions department, he was often brought in as extra talent, and he was a broadcaster at the legendary Beatles concert in August 1964, along with Jack Cullen, Jack Webster, and Jack Wasserman. That night, Esther and Janine were in the audience. Unfortunately for Janine, the girl behind her was screaming so hard that she vomited all over Janine's back, and she and Esther spent most of the 27-minute-long concert in the washroom. In some ways, Rini had become the face of CKNW. He was well-liked at the station, and he caught the attention of the station's receptionist, 25-year-old Adelaide Ann Miller, who went by the name Lolly. George Garrett, a CKNW news reporter at the time, tells me that they used to call her Lolly the Dolly. Are you planning a wedding? Then you're likely in the market for an engagement ring and wedding band that you'll be proud to wear for decades. Erin Haken is an accomplished Vancouver jewellery designer, and she has a range of gorgeous rings in stock. But what Erin most loves to do is to work with you and your partner to create your own uniquely designed ring. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Lolly had been recently widowed when her husband had drowned in a boating accident and she was left with a $25,000 settlement from the insurance company and their five-year-old son, Don. She and Rini quickly began an affair, which was not only obvious to everyone at the station, but eventually to Esther as well. Esther started to get anonymous phone calls late at night, asking if she knew that her husband was going around with somebody called Lolly. One night, after Rini fell asleep on the couch, Esther went through his wallet and found a letter from Hawaii that ended with Love, Lolly. Not long afterwards, she got a phone bill with a $60 charge from Hawaii. When she confronted Rennie with all of this, he told her that Lolly, the switchboard operator, was helping her out on a station promotion to Hawaii 
and he had called DJ Jerry Davies on some business. Lolly happened to answer the phone. It's what she does, he told Esther. Rini admitted that he was seeing Lolly, but they weren't sleeping together, he said. They just hung out and drank coffee. Very soon after this, Esther started to get sick. At first she put it down to overeating. But her nausea continued, so she cut back on coffee. That helped for a little while. Then she went to a Christmas party with Rini at Joyce Dayton's children's boutique where she worked. And she was violently sick the next day. Her hands started going numb, and she thought she had the flu. Esther was a -a two-pack-a-day smoker, and she did drink a lot of coffee. She was always trying to lose weight and usually going on or off a diet. Her co-workers put her stomach problems down to instant coffee, poor eating habits and dieting. In the meantime, rumours about Rini and Lolly's affair continued to fly around the station and eventually reached Bill Hughes, the station manager. Hughes told Rini that if the affair continued, they would both be fired. Esther started seeing a doctor for her increasing stomach pains. He diagnosed gastritis, lectured Esther on her diet, and prescribed an antacid and an anti-inflammatory drug to help with her muscular pain that was eventually taken off the market because of its horrific side effects. While Esther was at home sick, Rennie would often take 11-year-old Janine with him to the station's New Westminster offices. My dad said, you want to come to work and, you know, sit at the receptionist's desk and you can watch the guys like Norm Groman at that time was pulling the records. And yeah, he was very 20s in his 20s. I remember watching him through a glass window. And that's how it sort of cozied up to Lolly. And I think we did that a couple times. Well, you go and play receptionist and secretary. We would sit at her desk. I was just in my glory. It was a fun day. So I think what he did was he started to bring me there when maybe my mom was getting sick. And I loved going to CKNW. I loved it. It was fun. I got to go in the warehouse and pick out things, you know, from promotions and sit at his desk. And he was next to Jack Webster. It was just fun for me. I had no idea that, but that's the innocence of a child, right? Just, oh, sure, I want to go be a receptionist. Yes. I had no idea I was getting primed for something horrific. As Esther became sicker, Rini was able to spend more time with Lolly. He told her landlord and her parents that he was getting a divorce. And then he and Lolly went shopping for a new house. They put down an offer on a house and signed the mortgage papers in the name of Adelaide and Rini Castellani, claiming that they were soon to be married. Rini, though, had no intention of getting a divorce. He was a man consumed with his image and his position in the community, and to a lesser extent, the Catholic Church. Divorce would have been a terrible admission of defeat, and until 1968, it was quite difficult to get. A divorce had to be by mutual consent, and the only grounds were adultery. There was also a certain amount of public shaming. You had to publish a notice in two newspapers detailing the grounds for divorce, and all the sordid details, including the name of the person you're having an affair with. Esther was older and overweight, and Rini wanted to portray a more youthful image. Lolly fit that image. She was young, beautiful, and she had money. But getting rid of Esther wasn't going to be all that easy. It would take careful planning and ingenuity. 
Esther loved milkshakes, especially vanilla ones from White Spot, a local Vancouver restaurant chain. Rennie would stop by on his way home from work and bring her one. George Garrett was a reporter with CKNW for 40 years, and he worked with Rennie Castellani. Last time I talked to George, he told me a rather disturbing story that happened in 1965. It was during the time that Esther was in hospital. She was Vancouver General. And the evidence later showed that Rennie was taking her milkshakes that were laced with arsenic. I, of course, knew nothing about that, but I did see Rennie. I remember it was the white spot that used to be at Gladstone and Kingsway on the north side of Kingsway, no longer there. I was there on a Sunday afternoon working a shift, stopped for a hamburger, and there's Rennie. Hi, George. I'm just taking a milkshake up to Esther, and she's in Vancouver General Hospital. And I remember that just as clearly as as anything I've ever had to do with with Rene. As it turns out, milkshakes are the perfect delivery system for arsenic. Arsenic is colourless and tasteless and found in paints, wallpaper, fabrics, soaps and spring water. And at the time, it was cheap and easy to get because it was a common ingredient in household insecticides and pesticides. It's also a diabolically clever murder weapon, because given in small doses, it mimics the flu, gastroenteritis, or a viral infection, and it's very difficult to detect. Esther's health quickly deteriorated. Her stomach pains began to extend into her lower back. She spent entire days vomiting, and her hands began to go numb. Her doctor was clueless and continued to blame Esther for her own illness, telling her it was either an inflamed gallbladder or gastroenteritis, likely brought on by her poor diet. Esther's mother was fed up, and she told Rini she was getting a second opinion. She called Dr. Bernard Moscovich, a specialist in internal medicine. Moscovich came and saw Esther at her home that night, and he had her admitted to Vancouver General Hospital the next day. Dr. Moscovich was worried about Esther's lack of appetite, and he encouraged her family to bring things into the hospital that would encourage her to eat. Rini was happy to oblige. He was a regular fixture at the hospital and brought Esther fluids, often in the form of the vanilla milkshakes that she loved, and he was always playing the role of the doting husband. Dr. Moscovich conducted 120 different tests, including blood work, x-rays, and he brought in specialists, but no one could figure out what was wrong with Esther. One night, Sheila, Esther's sister-in-law, dropped by to visit. She found Rini spoon-feeding a ground steak and bean dish that Esther's mother had made for her. Esther told him she didn't want any more, but Rini kept trying to shovel the food into her mouth. Finally, Sheila told him to stop, and Rini ordered her to throw it down the toilet and tell the nurse she'd eaten it all up. When Sheila confronted him later, he told her, When a house burns down, I don't look for where the fire started. I look for where I can build a new one. Rini's personal life was spinning out of control. Neither he nor Lolly had been able to contain the rumours of their affair at CKNW, and station manager Bill Hughes had had enough. He told their immediate supervisors to fire them both. Incredibly, Lolly, the single mother, was forced to resign, while Rini kept his job, using his wife's worsening health as an excuse to talk his way back in. Hughes agreed with his supervisor 
it would be unkind to drop him. When Janine went to visit her mother in hospital, she was shocked. Esther could barely get out of bed, and when she did, she had a hard time walking. The numbness and tingling were getting worse. As Esther's health worsened, Rini's colleagues were surprised that he intended to go through the station's latest promotion, the guy in the sky, because he'd be unable to visit his wife for the nine days that he would be perched on top of Vancouver's landmark, Bomax Sign. She's not that sick, he told them. Rini was, as always, short of money, and the promotion paid a bonus over his regular salary. It had already been extensively advertised on CKNW, and billboards had been placed around the car lot. The Bomax sign is still on West Broadway. It's now covered over by a Toys R Us sign, but you can still make out its orange and red letters. It stands 20 metres high, the height of a seven-storey building, and it was commissioned by Jimmy Patterson in 1958, before he went out on his own and he was still managing the Bomac car lot. Bomac hired a Pinkerton guard to stay near the bottom of the sign, not only to keep people from trying to climb up the scaffolding, but also to make sure that Rini did not come down. He would live in a station wagon, and he vowed to stay up there until every last car was sold. Here's Norm Groman. So he was in the promotion department, Rene Castellani, and it was quite a common knowledge that he was having an affair with the telephone receptionist, a lady named Lolly Miller. So we all knew that he and Lolly were an item. They had a sign in the Bowl McLean car dealership, Bomac, and it was advertised as the largest freestanding sign in the world. The promotion department came up with this idea that Rennie Castellani was going to spend 24 hours a day there for, for however long it took to sell a certain number of cars. He was not going to come down, and they did what they call cut-ins. People on the air would say, well, let's check in with Rennie Castellani, and he had the telephone up there, and even the all-night guy phoned, you know, 2, 3 hmm. o'clock in the morning. Yeah, hmm. he's still there, and they'd have a little chat. After a few days, her mother was thrilled to find that Esther was improving. But once Rini returned from the stunt, so did Esther's symptoms. By now, her hands and feet were completely numb. She couldn't keep water down, she had a blister-like rash all over her body, and she found even the lightest touch was painful. Her kidneys were shutting down, she had progressive heart failure and severe diarrhoea. By late June, Esther had been in hospital for seven weeks. Her condition had got so bad that she had to be put on oxygen. By early July, she was dead. Dr Moscovich told Rennie he couldn't sign the death certificate, that he needed Rennie's permission to perform an autopsy and determine cause of death. At first Rennie refused, but after he talked to his boss at CKNW and his longtime friend Frank Iasi, he realised how bad it would look, and he changed his mind. Then he went to his sister Louise's, where Janine was staying, to tell their daughter the news of her mother's death. I was at Nanton Street, that beautiful old home where Louise lived, and I said, where are you going? I think he was dropping me off there, maybe because he was going to the hospital, that he had got a call that my mom wasn't doing well, but he didn't relay that to me. 
He said he was going to the hospital, and I can remember feeling so ecstatic and so excited because I thought he was going to surprise me by bringing her home. And then he came home without her, and we sat in the living room. And I can remember the living room, you know, and like, wasn't a cozy living room, you know, it's almost like it had plastic on the couches. And him just looking at me and saying, your mom's gone to heaven, and me just looking at him and saying, what? And he said, she told me to tell you to take care of me. I went, she did. It was just the most out-of-body experience. Then we got in his van, and we went to my grandma's. My grandma was in bed. Like, I was scared. You're not really comprehending at all. It's like a dream, you know, that you're walking through slowly, watching all these people, and it was so horrifying, you know? Like, it was scary for a kid. My grandma couldn't get out of bed. I thought my grandma was dying as well. That's how bad, you know, she was. She was just, like, bedridden. The next day, Rini took Janine to the funeral home to pick out a casket for her mother. Then they went back to the house on 41st in Kerrisdale to pick something for Esther to wear. On July 14th, 1965, the family and friends of Esther Castellani gathered as she was buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby, British Columbia. The casket was a golden colour with silver handles, lined with gold-coloured silk. Inside, Esther was dressed in a powdered blue woolen suit and a white silk shirt that her 11-year-old daughter Janine had chosen. In Esther's hands were her favourite lily-of-the-valley flowers and a powdered blue rosary that Janine had chosen for her. Esther had been known as a happy, jolly woman who had made many friends during her 40 years. They were all at her graveside ceremony, her boss, Joyce Dayton, her friend, Frank Iacy, people from her husband's work at CKNW, and of course her family, with the exception of Janine, who was kept at home with the other children. Earlier that day, the mourners had been to a service for Esther at a South Granville church. Her husband, Rini Castellani, stood outside the door. He wore dark glasses, chewed gum, greeted the mourners one by one, and then guided them through the doors as if they were going to see a performance, which in a sense, they were. After the service, Rennie handed out samples of Peter Jackson's cigarettes, part of a CKNW promotion. Esther's mother and father, Mabel and Carl, sister Gloria, brother Carl Jr. and his wife Sheila, and Rennie climbed into a rented black limousine and rode to the cemetery, the lead car in front of a long line of mourners. As they drove along 12th Avenue, the limo became dangerously low on gas and they had to back up to a petrol station with a hearse behind them, fill up and continue on to the cemetery. Esther's brother Carl shook his head and said, wouldn't Esther just crack up over this? Her father thought it was an omen. Mabel and Carl paid for the funeral and had their daughter buried in a plot that they'd arranged for themselves years before. There was a short graveside ceremony, and then Esther was lowered into the ground. After the funeral, Rini told Esther's parents that he was taking Janine to Disneyland the next day, and that CKNW had loaned him their station wagon. Esther's family gave him some cash for the trip. What he didn't tell them was that he'd also be taking Lolly, and Lolly's five-year-old son, Don. Back at the hospital... Dr. Moscovich was mystified. The autopsy 
couldn't determine cause of death. Normally, things would stop there. People died in hospital all the time. But Dr. Moscovich had treated Esther for seven weeks. He liked her, and he couldn't let it go. He went home and spent the next few hours poring over Esther's medical history, looking for anything that he might have missed that could explain the cause of death. Blood tests had indicated that she might have been suffering from the effects of some type of toxin, but he'd ruled out lead, the most likely metal to cause this kind of reaction. Then he studied the various elements that a person could be exposed to in a lifetime. There's about 15 of them. And he realised that arsenic could have caused Esther's symptoms. It would explain the nausea and vomiting and the numbness and tingling sensation in her fingers and toes. A special test was required to detect arsenic, and no one had thought to test it. Murder simply wasn't on the radar. Lucky for Moscovich, the hospital had kept parts of Esther's organs from the autopsy, and he had these sent to the city analyst lab on East Cordova Street, the same building which is now the Vancouver Police Museum. The city analyst found over 1,500 times the normal amount of arsenic that should be found in the human body. In the New Castellani family, Esther was never mentioned again. You know, I never really got a chance to grieve my mom, ever. Oh. I was swooped up and we went to Disneyland and then I had a new mommy, mm. you know? Like, it was just weird. So weird. It's like you just had to shut it off because they did. I just know in my heart that he did it. I know he did it. My inside feeling. And it had nothing to do with poisoning my mom. It was just his behavior, how he was around people. He just shut it off. There was no husband that was distraught over losing a wife. You know, like, that was your wife. I just never saw that. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks to George Orr and Colleen Hardwick, who supplied the tapes from CKNW with the voices of Rini Castellani and Jack Cullen. This episode and the next are based entirely on original research and interviews from my book, Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. There's a lot more information on my books on my website, as well as photos from Murder by Milkshake, credits, and show notes. Just go to evelazarus.com.